When I go into a bank, I get rattled. The clerks rattle me. The wickets rattle me. The sight of money rattles me. Everything rattles me. The moment I cross the threshold of a bank and I attempt to transact business there, I become an irresponsible idiot. I knew this beforehand, but my salary had been raised to $50 a month, and I felt that the bank was the only place for it. So I shambled in and looked timidly round at the clerks. I had an idea that a person about to open an account must need consult the manager. I went up to a wicket-marked accountant. The accountant was a tall, cool devil. The very sight of him rattled me. My voice was sepulchral. Can I see the manager, I said, and added solemnly, alone. I don't know why, I said alone. Certainly, said the accountant, and fetched him. The manager was a grave, calm man. I held my fifty-six dollars clutched in a crumpled ball in my pocket. Are you the manager, I said. God knows I didn't doubt it. Yes, he said. Can I see you, I asked. Alone? I didn't want to say alone again, but without it, the thing seemed self-evident. The manager looked at me in some alarm. He felt that I had an awful secret to reveal. Come in here, he said, and led the way to a private room. He turned the key in the lock. We are safe from interruption in here, he said. Sit down. We both sat down and looked at each other. I found no voice to speak. You are one of Pinkerton's men, I presume, he said. He had gathered from my mysterious manner that I was a detective. I knew what he was thinking, and it made me worse. No, not from the Pinkertons, I said, seeming to imply that I came from a rival agency. To tell the truth, I went on, as if I had been prompted to lie about it. I'm not a detective at all. I have come to open account. I intend to keep all my money in this bank. The manager looked relieved, but still serious. He concluded now that I was a son of Baron Rothschild or a young ghoul. A large account, I suppose, he said. Fairly large, I whispered. I propose to deposit $56 now and $50 a month regularly. The manager got up and opened the door. He called to the accountant. Mr. Montgomery, he said unkindly loud. This gentleman is opening an account. We'll deposit $56. Good morning. I rose. A big iron door stood open at the side of the room. Good morning, I said and stepped into the safe. Come out, said the manager coldly and showed me the other way. I went up to the accountant's wicket and poked the ball of money at him with a quick convulsive movement, as if I were doing a conjuring trick. My face was ghastly pale. Here, I said, to posit it. The tone of the words seemed to mean, let us do this painful thing while the fit is on us. He took the money and gave it to another clerk. He made me write the sum on a slip and signed my name in a book. I no longer knew what I was doing. The bank swam before my eyes. Is it deposited? I asked in a hollow, vibrating voice. It is, said the accountant. Then I want to draw a check. My idea was to draw out six dollars of it for present use. Someone gave me a checkbook through a wicket. Someone else began telling me how to write it out. The people in the bank had the impression that I was an invalid millionaire. I wrote something on the check and thrust it in at the clerk. He looked at it. What? Are you drawing it all out again? He asked in surprise. Then I realized I had written 56 instead of 6. I was too far gone now for reason. I had a feeling that it was impossible to explain the thing. All the clerks had, had stopped. Alan Austin, as nervous as a kitten, went up certain dark and creaky stairs in the neighborhood of Pell Street and peered about for a long time on the dime landing before he found the name he wanted written obscurely on one of the doors. He pushed open this door as he had been told to do, and found himself in a tiny room, which contained no furniture, but a plain kitchen table, a rocking chair, and an ordinary chair. On one of the dirty buff-colored walls were a couple of shelves, containing in all perhaps a dozen bottles and jars, 
An old man sat in the rocking chair reading a newspaper. Alan, without a word, handed him the card he had been given. Sit down, Mr. Austin, said the old man very politely. I'm glad to make your acquaintance. Is it true, asked Alan, that you have a certain mixture that has, er, quite extraordinary effects? My dear sir, replied the old man, my stock and trade is not very large. I don't deal in laxatives and teething mixtures, but such as it is, it is varied. I think nothing I sell has effect which could be precisely described as ordinary. Well, the fact is, began Alan. Here, for example, interrupted the old man, reaching for a bottle from the shelf. Here is a liquid as colorless as water, almost tasteless, quite imperceptible in coffee, wine, or any other beverage. It is also quite imperceptible to any known method of autopsy. Do you mean it is a poison? cried Alan very much horrified call it a glove cleaner if you like said the old man indifferently maybe it will clean gloves i've never tried one might call it a life cleaner lives need cleaning sometimes i want nothing of that sort said alan probably it is just as well said the old man do you know the price of this for one teaspoonful which is sufficient I ask five hundred dollars. Never less, not a penny less. I hope all your mixtures are not as expensive, said Alan apprehensively. Oh dear no, said the old man. It would be no good charging that sort of price for a love potion, for example. Young people who need a love potion very seldomly have five thousand dollars. Otherwise, they would not need a love potion. I am glad to hear that, said Alan. I look at it like this, said the old man. Please a customer with one article, and he will come back when he needs another. Even if it is more costly, he will save up for it if necessary. So, said Alan, you really do sell love potions? If I did not sell love potions, said the old man reaching for another bottle, I should not have mentioned the other matter to you. It is only when one is in a position to oblige that one can afford to be so confidential. And these potions, said Alan, they are not just, er, oh no, said the old man, their effects are permanent and extend far beyond the mere casual impulse, but they include it. Oh yes, they include it bountifully insistently everlastingly dear me said alan attempting a look of scientific detachment how very interesting but consider the spiritual side said the old man i do indeed said alan for indifference said the old man they substitute devotion for scorn admiration give one tiny measure of this to the young lady its flavor is imperceptible in orange juice super cocktails and however gay and giddy she is she will change altogether she want nothing but solitude and you I can hardly believe it, said Alan. She is so fond of parties. She will not like them any more, said the old man. She will be afraid of the pretty girls you may meet. She will actually be jealous, cried Alan in rapture. Of me, yes, she will want to be everything to you. She is already, only she doesn't care about it. She will, when she has taken this, she will care intensely. You will be her sole interest in life. Wonderful, cried Alan. She will want to know all you do, said the old man. All that has happened to you during the day, every word of it. She will want to know what you are thinking about. Why you smile suddenly. Why you are looking sad. That is love, cried Alan. Yes, said the old man. How carefully she will look after you. She will never allow you to be tired, to sit in a drought, to neglect your food. If you are an hour late, she will be terrified. She will think you are killed or that some siren has caught you. I can hardly imagine Diana like that, cried Alan, overwhelmed with joy. You will not have to use your imagination, said the old man. And by the way, since there are always sirens, if by any chance It was quite by accident I discovered this incredible invasion of Earth by life forms from another planet. As yet, I haven't done anything about it. I can't think of anything to do. I wrote to the government, 
and they sent back a pamphlet on the repair and maintenance of frame houses. Anyhow, the whole thing is known. I'm not the first to discover it. Maybe it's even under control. I was sitting in my easy chair, idly turning the pages of a paperback book someone had left on the bus, when I came across the reference that first put me on the trail. For a moment I didn't respond. It took some time for the full import to sink in. After I'd comprehended, it seemed odd I hadn't noticed it right away. The reference was clearly to a non-human species of incredible properties, not indigenous to Earth, a species I hastened to point out customarily masquerading as ordinary human beings. Their disguise, however, became transparent in the face of the following observations by the author. It was at once obvious the author knew everything, knew everything and was taking it in his stride. The line, and I tremble remembering it even now, read, his eyes slowly roved about the room. Vague chills assailed me, and I tried to picture the eyes. Did they roll like dimes? The passage indicated not. They seemed to move through the air, not over the surface, rather rapidly. Apparently no one in the story was surprised. That's what tipped me off. No sign of amazement at such an outrageous thing. Later the matter was amplified. His eyes moved from person to person. There it was in a nutshell. The eyes had clearly come apart from the rest of him and were on their own. My heart pounded and my breath choked in my windpipe. I had stumbled on an accidental mention of a totally unfamiliar race, obviously non-terrestrial, yet to the characters in the book it was perfectly natural, which suggested the belonging to the same species. And the author? A slow suspicion burned in my mind. The author was taking it rather too easily in his stride. Evidently, he felt this was quite a usual thing. He made absolutely no attempt to conceal his knowledge. The story continued. Presently, his eyes fastened on Julia. Julia, being a lady, had at least the breeding to feel indignant. She is described as blushing and knitting her brows angrily. At this I sighed with relief. They weren't all non-terrestrials, the narrative continues. Slowly, calmly, his eyes examined every inch of her. Great Scott, but here the girl turned and stomped off and the matter ended. I lay back in my chair gasping with horror. My wife and family regarded me in wonder. What's wrong, dear? My wife asked. I couldn't tell her. Knowledge like this was too much for the ordinary run-of-the-mill person. I had to keep it to myself. Nothing. I gasped. I leaped up, snatched the book, and hurried out the room. In the garage, I continued reading. There was more. Trembling. I read the next revealing passage. He put his arm around Julia. Presently she asked him if he would remove his arm. He immediately did so with a smile. It's not said what was done with the arm after the fellow had removed it. Maybe it was left standing upright in the corner. Maybe it was thrown away. I don't care. In any case, the full meaning was there, staring me right in the face. Here was a race of creatures capable of removing portions of their anatomy at will. Eyes, arms, and maybe more. Without batting an eyelash, my knowledge of biology came in handy. At this point, obviously they were simple beings, unicellular, some sort of primitive single-celled things, beings no more developed than starfish. Starfish can do the same thing, you know. I read on and came to the incredible revelation, tossed off coolly by the author without the faintest tremor. Outside the movie theater, we split up. Part of us went inside, part over to the cafe for dinner. Binary fission, obviously. Splitting in half and forming two entities. Probably each lower half went to the cafe, it being farther, and the upper halves to the movies. I read on, hands shaking. I'd really stumbled onto something here. My mind reeled as I made out the passage. I'm afraid there's no doubt about it. Poor Bibney. 
had lost his head again, which was followed by, and Bob says he has utterly no guts, yet Bibney got around as well as the next person. The next person, however, was just as strange. He was soon described as totally lacking in brains. There was no doubt of the thing in the next passage. Julia, whom I had thought to be the one normal person, reveals herself as also being an alien life form similar to the rest. Quite deliberately, Julia had given her heart to the young man. It didn't relate what the final disposition of the organ was, but I didn't really care. It was evident Julia had gone right on living in her usual manner, like all the others in the book, without heart, arms, eyes, brains, viscera, dividing up in two people when the occasion demanded without a qualm. Thereupon she gave him her hand. I sickened. The rascal now had her hand as well as her heart. I shuddered to think what he's done with him. By this time, he took her arm. Not content to wait, he had to start dismantling her on his own. Flushing crimson, I slammed the book shut and leaped to my feet, but not in time to escape one last reference to those carefree bits of anatomy whose travel had originally thrown me on the track. Her eyes followed him all the way down the road and across the meadow. I rushed from the garage back inside the warm house, as if the accursed things were following me. My wife and children were playing Monopoly in the kitchen. I joined them and played with frantic fervor, brow feverish, teeth chattering. I had had enough of the thing. I want to hear no more about it. Let them come on. Let them invade Earth. I don't want to get mixed up in it. I have absolutely no stomach for it. All were crowding around M. Bermutier, the judge, who was giving his opinion about the St. Cloud mystery. For a month, this inexplicable crime had been the talk of Paris. Nobody could make head or tail of it. M. Bermutier, standing with his back to the fireplace, was talking, citing the evidence, discussing the various theories, but arriving at no conclusion. Some women had risen in order to get nearer to him, and were standing with their eyes fastened on the clean-shaven face of the judge, who was saying such weighty things. They were shaking and trembling, moved by fear and curiosity by the eager and insatiable desire for the horrible which haunts the soul of every woman. One of them, paler than the others, said during a pause, It's terrible. It verges on the supernatural. The truth will never be known. The judge turned to her. True, madame, it is likely that the actual facts will never be discovered. As for the word supernatural, which you have just used, it has nothing to do with the matter. We are in the presence of very cleverly conceived and executed crime so well enshrouded in mystery that we cannot disentangle it from the involved circumstances which surround it. But once I had to take charge of an affair in which the uncanny seemed to play a part. In fact, the case became so confused that it had to be given up. Several women exclaimed at once, Oh, tell us about it. M. Bermutier smiled in a dignified manner, as a judge should, and went on. Do not think, however, that I, for one minute ascribed anything in the case to supernatural influences. I believe only in normal causes, but if instead of using the word supernatural to express what we do not understand, we were simply to make use of the word inexplicable, it would be much better. At any rate, in the affair of which I am about to tell you, it is especially the surrounding, preliminary circumstances which impressed me. Here are the facts. I was at that time a judge at Ahasio, a little white city on the edge of a bay, which is surrounded by high mountains. The majority of the cases which came up before me concerned vendettas. There are some that are superb, dramatic, ferocious, heroic. We find they're the most beautiful causes for revenge, of which one could dream. Enmities hundreds of years old, quieted for a time but never extinguished. 
abominable stratagems, murders, becoming massacres, and almost deeds of glory. For two years I heard of nothing but the price of blood, of this terrible Corsican prejudice, which compels revenge for insults meted out to the offending person and all his descendants and relatives. I had seen old men, children, cousins murdered. My head was full of these stories. One day I learned that an Englishman had just hired a little villa at the end of the bay for several years. He had brought with him a French servant, who he had engaged on the way at Marcella's. Soon this peculiar person, living alone, only going out to hunt and fish, aroused a widespread interest. He never spoke to anyone, never went to the town, and every morning he would practice for an hour or so with his revolver and rifle. Legends were built up around him. It was said that he was some high personage fleeing from his fatherland for political reasons. Then it was affirmed that he was in hiding after having committed some abominable crime. Some particularly horrible circumstances were even mentioned. In my judicial position, I thought it necessary to get some information about this man, but it was impossible to learn anything. He called himself Sir John Rowell. I therefore had to be satisfied with watching him as closely as I could, but I could see nothing suspicious about his actions. However, as rumors about him were growing and becoming more widespread, I decided to try to see this stranger myself, and I began to hunt reg regularly in the neighborhood of his grounds. For a long time I watched without finding an opportunity. At last it came to me in the shape of a partridge, which I shot and killed right in front of the Englishman. My dog fetched it for me, but taking the bird, I went at once to Sir John Rowell, and begging his pardon, asked him to accept it. He was a big man with red hair and beard, very tall, very broad, kind of calm and polite Hercules. He had nothing of the so-called British stiffness, and in a broad English accent, he thanked me warmly for my attention. At the end of a month, we had five or six conversations. One night at last, as I was passing before his door, I saw him in the garden, seated astride a chair, smoking his pipe. I bowed and he invited me to come in and have a glass of beer. I needed no urging. He received me with the most punticulous English courtesy, sang the praises of France and of Corsica, and declared that he was quite in love with this country. Then with great caution and under the guise of a vivid interest, I asked him a few questions about his life and his plans. He answered without embarrassment, telling me that he had traveled a great deal in Africa, in the Indies, in America, he added laughing. I had many adventures. Then I turned the conversation on hunting, and he gave me the most curious detail on hunting the hippopotamus, the tiger, the elephant, and even the gorilla. I said, are all these animals dangerous? He smiled. Oh no, man is the worst. And he laughed a good broad laugh, the wholesome laugh of a contented Englishman. I have also frequently been man hunting. Then he began to talk about weapons, and he invited me to come in and see different makes of guns. His parlor was draped in black, black silk embroidered in gold. Big yellow flowers as, as brilliant as fire were worked on the dark material. He said, It is a Japanese material, but in the middle of the widest panel a strange thing attracted my attention. A black object stood out against a square of red velvet. I went up to it. It was a hand, a human hand, not the clean white hand of a skeleton, but a dried black hand with yellow nails, the muscles exposed and traces of old blood on the bones, which were cut off as clean as though it had been chopped off with an axe near the middle of the forearm. Around the wrist, an enormous iron chain riveted and soldered to this unclean member, fastened it to the wall by a ring strong enough to hold an elephant in leash. I asked, what is that? The Englishman answered quietly, this is my best enemy. It comes from America too. The bones were severed by a sword and the skin cut off with a sharp stone and dried in the sun for a week. 
I touched these human remains, which must have belonged to a giant. The uncommonly long fingers were attached by enormous tendons, which still had pieces of skin hanging to them in places. His hand was terrible to see. It made one think of some savage vengeance. I said this, this man must have been very strong. The Englishman answered quietly, Yes, but I was stronger than he. I put on the chain to hold him. I thought that he was joking, I said. The chain is useless now. The hand won't run away. Sir John Rowell answered seriously. It always wants to go away. The chain is needed. I glanced at him quickly, questioning his face, and I asked myself, Is he an insane man or a practical joker? But his face remained inscrutable, calm and friendly. I turned to other subject and admired his rifles. However, I noticed that he kept three loaded revolvers in the room, as though constantly in fear of some attack. I paid him several calls, then I did not go any more. People had become used to his presence. Everybody had lost interest in him. A whole year rolled by. One morning, toward the end of November, my servant awoke me and announced that Sir John Rowell had been murdered during the night. Half an hour later, I entered the Englishman's house, together with the police commissioner and the captain of the gendarmes. The servant, bewildered and in despair, was crying before the door. At first, I suspected this man, but he was innocent. The guilty party could never be found. On entering Sir John's parlor, I noticed the body stretched out on its back in the middle of the room. His vest was torn. The sleeve of his jacket had been pulled off. Everything pointed to a violent struggle. The Englishman had been strangled. His face was black, swollen and frightful, and seemed to express a terrible fear. He held something between his teeth, and his neck pierced by five or six holes, which looked as though they had been made by some iron instrument was covered with blood. A physician joined us. He examined the finger marks on the neck for a long time, and then made his strange announcement. It looks as though he had been strangled by a skeleton. A cold chill seemed to run down my back, and I looked over to where I had formerly seen the terrible hand. It was no longer there. The chain was hanging down broken. I bent over the dead man, and in his contracted mouth, I found one of the fingers of this vanished hand, cut or rather sawed off by the teeth down to the second knuckle. Then the investigation began. Nothing could be discovered. No door, window, or piece of furniture had been forced. The two watchdogs had not been aroused from their sleep. Here, in a few words, is the testimony of the servant. For a month, his master had seemed excited. He had received many letters, which he would immediately burn. Often in a fit of passion, which approached madness, he had taken a switch and struck wildly at this dried hand riveted to the wall, which had disappeared. No one knows how. At the very hour of the crime, he would go to bed very late and carefully lock himself in. He always kept weapons within reach. Often at night, he would talk loudly as though he were quarreling with someone. That night, somehow, he had made no noise, and it was only on going to open the window that the servant had found Sir John murdered. He suspected no one. I communicated that I knew of the dead man to the judges and the public officials throughout the whole island. A minute investigation was carried on. Nothing could be found out. One night, about three months after the crime, I had a terrible nightmare. I seemed to see the horrible hand running over my curtains and walls like an immense scorpion or spider. Three times I awoke. Three times I went to sleep again. Three times I saw the hideous object galloping around my room and moving its fingers like legs. The following day, the hand was brought me, found in the cemetery on the grave of Sir John Rowell, who had been buried there. We had been unable to find his family. The first finger was missing. Ladies, there is my story. I know nothing more. The woman deeply stirred. One of them exclaimed, But that is neither a climax nor explanation. We will be un unable to sleep unless you give us your opinion of what had occurred. The judge smiled severely. 
Oh, ladies, I shall certainly spoil your terrible dreams. I simply believe that the legitimate owner of the hand was not dead, but he came to get it with his remaining one. But I don't know how. It was a kind of vendetta. One of the women murdered. No, it can't be that. And the judge, still smiling, said, Didn't I tell you that my explanation would not satisfy you? The morning of June 27th was clear and sunny, with fresh warmth of a full summer day. The flowers were blossoming profusely, and the grass was richly green. The people of the village began to gather in the square, between the post office and the bank around ten o'clock. In some towns there were so many people that the lottery took two days and had to be started on June 20th. But in this village, where there were only about three hundred people, the whole lottery took less than two hours, so it could begin at ten o'clock in the morning and still be through in time to allow the villagers to get home for noon dinner. The children assembled first, of course. School was recently over for the summer. The feeling of liberty sat uneasily on most of them. They tended to gather together quietly for a while, before they broke into boisterous play, and their talk was still of the classroom and the teacher of books and reprimand. Bobby Martin had already stuffed his pockets full of stones, and the other boys soon followed his example, selecting the smoothest and roundest stones. Bobby and Harry Jones and Dickie Delacroix, the villagers pronounced his name Delacroix, eventually made a great pile of stones in one corner of the square, and guarded it against the raids of the other boys. The girls stood aside, talking among themselves, looking over their shoulders at the boys, and the very small children rolled in their dust or clung to the hands of their older brothers or sisters. Soon the men began to gather, surveying their own children, speaking of planting and rain, tractors and taxes. They stood together, away from the pile of stones in the corner, and their jokes were quiet, and they smiled rather than laughed. The women wearing faded house dresses and sweaters came shortly after their menfolk, they greeted one another and exchanged bits of gossip as they went to join their husbands. Soon the women standing by their husbands began to call to their children, and the children came reluctantly, having to be called four or five times. Bobby Martin ducked under his mother's grasping hand and ran, laughing back up to the pile of stones. His father spoke up sharply, and Bobby came quickly back. Bobby came quickly and took his place between his father and his eldest brother. The lottery was conducted, as were the square dances, the teen club, the Halloween program by Mr. Summers, who had time and energy to devote to civic activities. He was a round-faced, jovial man, and he ran the coal business, and people were sorry for him because he had no children, and his wife was a scold. When he arrived in the square carrying the black wooden box, there was a murmur of conversation among the villagers, and he waved and called, little late today, folks. The postmaster, Mr. Graves, followed him, carrying a three-legged stool, and the stool was put in the center of the square, and Mr. Summers set the black box down on it. The villagers kept their distance, leaving a space between themselves and the stool. When Mr. Summers said, some of you fellows want to give me a hand, there was a hesitation before two men. Mr. Martin and his eldest son, Baxter, came forward to hold the box steady on the stool, while Mr. Summers stirred up the papers inside it. The original paraphernalia for the lottery had been lost long ago, and the black box now resting on the stool had been put into use even before old man Warner, the oldest man in town, was born. 
Mr. Summers spoke frequently to the villagers about making a new box, but no one liked to upset even as much tradition as was represented by the black box. There was a story that the present box had been made with some piece of the boxes that had preceded it, the one that had been constructed when the first people settled down to make a village here. Every year after the lottery, Mr. Summers began talking again about a new box, but every year the subject was allowed to fade off without anything being done. The black box grew shabbier each year. By now it was no longer completely black, but splintered badly along one side to show the original wood color, and in some places, faded or stained. Mr. Martin and his eldest son Baxter held the black box securely on the stool, until Mr. Summers had stirred the papers thoroughly with his hand. Because so much of the ritual had been forgotten or discarded, Mr. Summers had been successful in having slips of paper substituted for the chips of wood that had been used for generations. Chips of wood, Mr. Summers had argued, had been all very well when the village was tiny, but now that the population had more than 300 and likely to keep on growing, it was necessary to use something that would fit more easily into the black box. The night before the lottery, Mr. Summers and Mr. Graves made up the slips of paper and put them in the box, and it was then taken to the safe of Mr. Summers' coal company and locked up until Mr. Summers was ready to take it to the square the next morning. The rest of the year the box was, was put away, sometimes one place, sometimes another. It had spent one year in Mr. Graves' barn and another year underfoot in the post office, and sometimes it was set, it was set on a shelf in the Martin grocery and left there. There was a great deal of fussing to be done before Mr. Summers declared the lottery open. There were the lists make up of heads of families, heads of households in each family, members of each household in each family. There was the proper swearing in of Mr. Summers by the postmaster as the official of the lottery. At one time, some people remembered there had been a recital of some sort performed by the official of the lottery, a perfunctory, tuneless chant that had been rattled off duly each year. Some people believed that the official of, of the lottery used, used to stand just so when he said or sang it. Others believed that he was supposed to walk among the people. But years and years ago, this part of the ritual had been allowed to lapse. There had been also a ritual salute, which the official of the lottery had had to use in addressing each person who came up to draw from the box. But this also had changed with time, until now it was felt unnecessary only for the official to speak to each person approaching. Mr. Summers was very good at all this, in his clean white shirt and blue jeans, with one hand resting carelessly on the black box. He seemed very proper and important as he talked interminably to Mr. Graves and the Martins, just as Mr. Summers finally left off talking and turned to the assembled villagers. Miss Hutchinson came hurriedly along the path to the square, her sweater thrown over her shoulders and slid into place in the back of the crowd. Clean forgot what day it was, she said to Miss Delacroix, who stood next to her, and they both laughed softly. Thought my old man was out back stacking wood, Miss Hutchinson went on. Then I looked out the window and the kids were gone. Then I remembered it was the 27th and came a-running. She dried her hands on her apron and Miss Delacroix said, You're in time, though. They're still talking away up there. Miss Hutchinson craned her neck to see through the woods and found her husband and children standing near the front. She tapped Miss Delacroix on the arm as a farewell and began to make her way through the crowd. The people separated good-humoredly to let her through. Two or three people said in voices just loud enough to be heard across the crowd, Here comes your Mrs. Hutchinson. And Bill, she made it after all. Miss Hutchinson reached her husband 
and mr summers who had been waiting said cheerfully thought we were going to have to get on without you tessie miss hutchinson said grinning wouldn't have me leave my dishes in the sink now would you joe and soft laughter rang through the crowd and the people stirred back into position after miss hutchinson's arrival well now mr summers said soberly guess we better get started get this over with so as we can go back to work anybody ain't here dunbar several people said dunbar dunbar mr summers consulted his list clyde dunbar he said that's right he's broke his leg hasn't he who's drawing for him me i guess a woman said and mr summers turned to look at her wife draws for her husband mr summers said don't you have a grown boy to do it for you janey although mr summers and everyone in the village knew the answer perfectly well it was the business of the official of the lottery to ask such questions formally mr summers waited with an expression of polite interest while miss while miss dunbar answered horses not but sixteen yet miss dunbar said regretfully guess i got a fill in for the old man this year right senior summers said he made a note on the list he was holding then he asked watson boy drawing this year a tall boy in the crowd raised his hand here he said i'm drawing for my mother and me he blinked his eyes nervously and ducked his head as several voices in the crowd said things like good fellow lack and glad to see your mother's got a man to do it well mr summers said guess that's everyone old man warner make it here a voice said and mr summers nodded a sudden hush fell on the crowd as mr summers cleared his throat and looked at the list already he called now i'll read the names heads of the families first and the men come up and take a paper out of the box keep the paper folded in your hand without looking at it until everyone has had a turn everything clear the people had done it so many times that they only half listened to the directions most of them were quiet wetting their lips not looking around and then mr summers raised one hand high and said adams a man disengaged himself from the crowd and came forward hi steve mr summers said and mr adams said hi hi joe they grinned at one another humorously and nervously then mr adams reached into the black box and took out a folded paper he held it firmly by one corner as he turned and went hastily back to his place in the crowd where he stood a little apart from his family not looking down at his hand allen mr summers said anderson bentham seems like there's no time at all between lotteries any more miss delacroix said to miss graves in the back row seems like we got through the last one only last week time sure goes fast miss graves said clark delacroix there goes my old man miss delacroix said she held her breath while her husband went forward dunbar mr summers said and miss dunbar went steadily to the box while one of the women said go on janey and another said there she goes we're next miss graves said she watched while mr graves came around from the side of the box greeted mr summers gravely and selected a slip of paper from the box by now all through the crowd there were men holding the small folded papers in their large hands turning them over and over nervously miss dunbar and her two sons stood together miss dunbar holding the slip of paper harbert hutchinson get up there bill miss hutchinson said and the people near her laughed jones they do say mr adams said to the old man warner who stood next to him that over in the north village they're talking of giving up the lottery old man warner snorted pack of crazy fools he said listening to the young folks nothing's good enough for them next thing you know they'll be wanting to go back to live in caves nobody work any more live that way for a while used to be a saying about lottery in june corn be heavy soon first thing you know we'd all be eating stewed chicken weed and corn and acorns there's always been a lottery he added petulantly 
Bad enough to see young Joe Summers up there joking with everybody. Some places have already quit lotteries, Miss Adams said. Nothing but trouble in that, old man Warner said stoutly. Pack of young fools. Martin and Bobby Martin watched his father go forward. Overdeck. Percy. I wish they'd hurry, Miss Dunbar said to her older son. I wish they'd hurry. They're almost through, her son said. You get ready to run till dad, Miss Dunbar said. Mr. Summers called his own name and then stepped forward precisely and selected a slip from the box. Then he called Warner. Seventy-seventh year I've been in the lottery, old man Warner said, as he went through the crowd. Seventy-seventh time. Watson. The tall boy came awkwardly through the crowd. Someone said, don't be nervous, Jack. And Mr. Summers said, take your time, son. Zanini. After that, there was a long pause, a breathless pause, until Mr. Summer, holding a slip of paper in the air, said, All right, fellows, for a minute, no one moved. And then all the slips of paper were opened. Suddenly, all the women began to speak at once, saying, Who is it? Who's got it? Is it the Dunbars? Is it the Watsons? Then the voices began to say, It's Hutchinson. It's Bill. Bill Hutchinson's got it. Go tell your father, Miss Dunbar said to her older son. People began to look around to see the Hutchinsons. Bill Hutchinson was standing quiet, staring down at the paper in his hand. Suddenly, Tessie Hutchinson shouted to Mr. Summers, You didn't give him time enough to take a paper he wanted. I saw you. It wasn't fair. Be a good sport, Tessie, Miss Delacroix called. And Mr. Graves said all of us took the same chance. Shut up, Tessie, Bill Hutchinson said. Well, everyone, Mr. Summers said. I was done pretty fast. Now we've got to be a hurrying a little more to get done in time. He consulted his next list. Bill, he said, you draw for the Hutchinson's family. You got any other households in the Hutchinson's? There's Don and Ava, Mr. Hutchinson yelled. Make them take their chance. Daughters draw with their husbands' families, Tessie, Mr. Summers said gently. You know that as well as anyone else. It wasn't fair, Tessie said. I guess not, Joe, Bill Hutchinson said regretfully. My daughter draws with her husband's family. That's only fair. And I've got no other family except the kids. And as far as drawing for families is concerned, it's you. Mr. Summers said an explanation. And as far as drawing for a household is concerned, that's you too, right? Right, Bill Hutchinson said. How many kids, Bill? Mr. Summers asked formally. Three, Bill Hutchinson said. There's Bill Jr. and Nancy and little Dave and Tessie and me. All right then, Mr. Summers said. Harry, you got their tickets back? Mr. Graves nodded and held up the slips of paper. Put them in the box then, Mr. Summers directed. Take bills and put it in. I think we ought to start over, Miss, Miss Hutchinson said, as quietly as she could. I tell you, it wasn't fair. You didn't... I had seen the magic shop from afar several times. I had passed it once or twice. A shop window of alluring little objects. Magic balls, magic hens, wonderful cones, ventriloquist dolls... The material of the basket trick, packs of cards that looked all right, and all that sort of thing. But never had I thought of going in until one day, almost without warning, Gip hauled me by my finger right up to the window, and so conducted himself that there was nothing for it but to take him in. I had not thought the place was there, to tell the truth. A modest-sized frontage in Regent Street, between the picture shop and the place where the chicks run about just out of patent incubators. There it was, sure enough. I had fancy it was down near the circus, or round the corner in Oxford Street, or even in Holborn, always over the way and a little inaccessible. It had been with something of the mirage in its position, but here it was now, quite indisputably,
and the fat end of Gip's pointing finger made a noise upon the glass. If I was rich, said Gip, dabbing a finger at the disappearing egg, I'd buy myself that, and that, which was the crying baby, very human in that, which was a mystery, and called, so a neat card asserted, by one in astonishing your friends. Anything, said Gip, will disappear under one of those cones. I have read about it in a book, and there, Dada, in the vanishing halfpenny, only they've put it this way up, so as we can't see how it's done. Gip, dear boy, inherits his mother's breeding, and he did not propose to enter the shop or worry in any way. Only you know, quite unconsciously, he lugged my finger doorward and made his interest clear. That, he said, and pointed to the magic bottle. If you had that, I said, at which promising inquiry he looked up with a sudden radiance. I could show it to Jesse, he said, thoughtful as ever of others. It's less than a hundred days to your birthday, Gibbles, I said, and laid my hand on the door handle. Gib made no answer, but his grip tightened. But his grip tightened on my finger, and so we came into the shop. It was no common shop, this. It was a magic shop, and all the prancing pre precedence Gip would have taken in the matter of mere toys was wanting. He left the burden of the conversation on me. It was a little narrow shop, not very well lit, and the doorbell pinged again with a plaintive note as we closed it behind us. For a moment or so we were alone and could glance about us. There was a tiger in the paper mache on the glass case that covered the low counter. A grave kind-eyed tiger had that waggled his head in a methodical manner. There were several crystal spheres, a china hand holding magic cards, a stock of magic fishbowls at various scenes, and an immodest magic hat that shamelessly displayed its springs. On the floor were magic mirrors, one to draw you out long and thin, one to swell your head and vanish your legs, and one to make you short and fat like a drought. And while we were laughing at these, the shopman, as I supposed, came in. At any rate, there he was, behind the counter, a curious, sallow, dark man, with, with one ear larger than the other, and a chin like a toe cap of a boot. What can we have the pleasure, he said, spreading his long magic fingers on the glass case. And so with the start we were aware of him. I want, I said, to buy my little boy a few simple tricks. Legitimain, he asked, mechanical, domestic. Anything amusing, said I. Hmm, said the shopman, and scratched his head for a moment as if thinking. Then quite distinctly, he drew from his head a glass ball. Something in this way, he said, and held it out. The action was unexpected. I had seen the trick done at entertainments endless times before. It's part of the common stock of conjurers, but I had not expected it. That's good, I said with a laugh. Isn't it, said the shopman. Gip stretched out his disengaged hand to take the object and found merely a blank palm. It's in your pocket, said the shopman, and there it was. How much will it be, I asked. We make no charge for glass balls, said the shopman politely. We get them. He picked out. He picked one out of his elbow as he spoke. Free. He produced another from the back of his neck and laid it beside its predecessor on the counter. Gip regarded his glass ball sagely, then directed a look of inquiry at the two on the counter, and finally brought his round-eyed scrutiny to the shopman who smiled. You may have those too, said the shopman. And if you don't mind, one from the, my mouth. Gip counseled me mutely for a moment, and then in profound silence put away the four balls, resumed my reassuring finger, and nerved himself for the next event. We get all our smaller tricks in that way, the shopman remarked. I laughed in the manner of one who subscribes to a jest. Instead of going to the wholesale shop, I said, 
Of course it's cheaper. In a way, said the shopman, though we pay in the end. But not so heavily as people suppose. Our larger tricks and our daily provisions and all the other things we want, we get out of that hat. And you know, sir, if you'll excuse my saying it, there isn't a wholesale shop not for genuine magic goods. Sir, I don't know if you noticed our inscription, the genuine magic shop. He drew a business card from his cheek and handed it to me. Genuine, he said with a finger on the word, and added there is absolutely no deception, sir. He seemed to be carrying out the joke pretty thoroughly, I thought. He turned to Gip with a smile of remarkable affability. You, you know you are the right sort of... You, you know you are the right sort of boy. I was surprised at his knowing that, because in the interests of discipline, we keep it rather secret even at home. But Gip received in an unflinching silence, keeping a steadfast eye on him. It's only the right sort of boy gets through that doorway. And as if by way of illustration, there came a rattling at the door, and a squeaking little voice could be heard faintly. Nyar, I want to go in there, Dada. I want to go in there. Nyar. And then the accents of a downtro downtrodden parent, urging consolation and propitations. It's locked, Edward, he said. But it isn't, said I. It is, sir, said the shopman. Always for that sort of child. Always for that sort of child. And he spoke. We had a glimpse of the other youngster, a little white-faced pallid from sweet eating and over-sapid food and distorted by evil passions. A ruthless little egotist, pawing at the enchanted pain. It's no good, sir, said the shopman as I moved, with my natural helpfulness, doorward, and, and presently the spoilt, spoilt child was carried off howling. How do you manage that, I said, breathing a little more freely. Magic, said the shopman, with a careless wave of the hand, and behold, sparks of colored fire flew out of his fingers and vanished into the shadows of the shop. You were saying, he said, addressing himself toward Gip, before you came in that you would like to buy you would like one of our buy one and astonish your friends boxes. Gip, after a gallant effort, said yes. It's in your pocket. And leaning over the counter he realized he really had an extraordinarily long body. This amazing person produced the article in the customary conjurer's manner. Paper, he said, and took a sheet out of that empty hat with the springs, and behold his mouth was a string box, from which he drew an unending thread. Which one he had tied his parcel, he bit off, and it seemed to me, swallowed the ball of string. And then he lit a candle at the nose of one of the ventriloquist dummies, stuck one of his fingers, which had become sealing wax red, into the flame, and so sealed the parcel. Then there was the disappearing egg, he remarked, and produced one from within my coat breast and packed it. Also the crying baby, very human. I handed each parcel to Gip as it was ready, and he clasped them to his chest. He said very little, but his eyes were eloquent. The clutch of his arms was eloquent, and he was the playground of unex he was the playground of unspeakable emotions. These, you know, were real magics. Then, with a start, I discovered something moving about in my hat, something soft and jumpy. I whipped it off, and a ruffled pigeon, no doubt a confederate, dropped out and ran on the counter and went. I fancy into a cardboard box behind the paper mache tiger. Tut tut," said the shopman dexterously relieving me of my headdress, careless bird, and, as I live, nesting. He shook my hat and shook out into his extended hand two or three eggs, a large marble, a watch, and about half a dozen of the inevitable glass balls, and then crumpled, crinkled paper, more and more and more, taking all the time of the way, taking all the time of the way in which people neglect to brush their hats inside, as well as out. 
Politely, of course, but with all certain personal application. All sorts of things accumulate, sir. Not you, of course, in particular. Nearly every customer. Astonishing what they carry about with them. The crumpled paper rose and billowed on the counter more and more, until he was nearly hidden from us, until he was altogether hidden, and still his voice went on and on. We, none of us know what the fair semblance of a human may... None of us know what the fair semblance of a human being may conceal, sir. Are we all then no better than brushed exteriors or whited sepulchres? His voice stopped, exactly like when you hit a neighbor's gramophone with a well-aimed brick. The same instant silence, and the rustle of the paper stopped, and everything was still. Have you done with my hat, I said after an interval. There was no answer. I stared at Gip, and Gip stared at me. And there were our distortions in the magic mirrors looking very rum and grave and quiet. I think we'll go now, I said. Will you tell me how much all this comes to? I say, I said on a rather louder note. I want the bill and my hat, please. It might have been a sniff from behind the paper pile. Let's look behind the counter, Gip, I said. He's making fun of us. I led Gip round the head-wagging tiger. And what do you think there was behind the counter? No one at all. Only my hat on the floor and a common conjurer's lop-eared white rabbit lost in meditation and looking as stupid, as stupid and crumbled as only a conjurer's rabbit can do. I resumed my hat, lolloped a lollop or so out of my way. Dada, said Gip in a guilty whisper. What is it, Gip, said I. I do like this shop, Dada. So should I, I said to myself, if the counter wouldn't suddenly extend itself to shut one off from the door. But I didn't call Gip's attention to that. Pussy, he said with a hand out to the rabbit as it came lolloping past us. Pussy, do give a magic, and his eye followed it as it squeezed through a door. I had certainly not remarked a moment before. Then this door opened wider, and the man with one ear larger than the other appeared again. He was smiling. He was smiling still, but his eyes met mine with something between amusement and defiance. You'd like to see our, so our showroom, sir, he said, with an innocent suavity. Gip tugged my finger forward. I glanced at the counter and met the shopman's eye again. I was beginning to think the magic was just was just a little too genuine. We haven't very much time, I said, but somehow we were inside the showroom before I could finish that. All goods of the same quality, said the shopman, rubbing his, fle his flexible hands together. And that is the best. Nothing in this place that isn't genuine magic and warranted thoroughly rum. Excuse me, sir? I felt him, <clears throat> I felt him pulling at something that clung to my coat sleeve. And then I saw he held a little wriggling red demon by the tail. The little creature bit and fought, and tried to get at his hand, and in a moment he tossed it carelessly behind the counter. No doubt the thing was only an image of twisted Indiana, India rubber, but for the moment, and his gesture was exactly that of a man who handles some petty-biting bit, petty bit of vermin. I glanced at Gip, but Gip was looking at a magic rocking horse. I was glad he hadn't seen the thing. I say, I said in an undertone, indicating Gip and the Red Demon with my eyes, you haven't many things like that about, have you? None of ours. Probably brought it with you, said the shopman, also in an undertone and with a more dazzling smile than ever, astonishing what people will carry about with them unawares. And then to Gip, do you see anything you fancy here? There were many things that Gip fancied here. He turned to this astonishing tradesman, with a mingled confidence and respect. Is that a magic sword, he said. A magic toy sword. It neither bends, breaks, nor cuts the finger. It renders the bearer invincible in battle against anyone under 18. 
half a crown to seven and six pence according to size. These panoplies on the cards are for juvenile knights, errant and very useful. Shield of safety, sandals of swiftness, helmet of invisibility. Oh, daddy, gasped Gip. I tried to find out what they cost, but the shopman did not heed me. He had Gip now. It had got him away from my finger, and he had embarked upon the exposition of all his confounded stock. Nothing was going to stop him. Presently I saw, with a, calm, with a qualm of distrust, something very like jealousy, that Gip had hold of this person's finger as usually he had hold of mine. No doubt the fellow was interesting, I thought, and had an interestingly faked lot of stuff, but really good faked stuff, still. I wandered after them, saying very little, but keeping an eye on the pre on this prestidigital fellow. After all, Gip was enjoying it, and no doubt when the time came to go, we should be able to go quite easily. It was a long, rambling place, that, show that showroom, a gallery broken up by stands and stalls and pillars, with archways leading off to other departments, in which the queerest-looking assistants loafed and stared at one, with perplexing mirrors and curtains. So perplexing indeed were these that I was presently unable to make out the door by which we had come. The shopmen showed Gip magic trains that ran without steam or clockwork, just as you set the signals, and then some very valuable boxes of soldiers that all, that all came alive directly. He took off the lid and said, I myself have a very quick ear. It was a tongue-twisting sound, but Gip, he has his mother's ears, got it in no time. Bravo, said the shopman, putting the men back into the box unceremoniously and handing it to Gip. Now, said the shopman, and in a moment, Gip had made them all alive again. You take that box, said the, asked the shopman. We'll take that box, said I, unless you charge its full value, in which case I would need a trust magnet. Dear heart, no, said the shopman, swept the little men back again. Shut the lid, waved the box in the air, and there it was in brown paper, tied up and, and with Gip's full name and address on the paper. The shopman laughed at my amazement. This is a genuine magic shop, he said. The real thing. It's a little too genuine for my taste, I said again. After that, he fell to, showing Gip tricks and odd tricks, and still odder the way they were done. He explained them, he turned them inside and out, and there was, dear, there was the dear little chap, nodding with the busy bit of a head in the sagest manner. I did not, as, I did not attend as well as I might. Hey, presto, said the magic shop man. And then there, there would come the clear small, hey presto of the boy, but it was distracted by other things. But I was distracted by other things. I was being borne in upon me, just how tremendously rum this place was. It was, so to speak, inundated with the sense of rumness. There was something a little rum about the fixtures even, about the ceiling, about the floor, about the casually distributed chairs. I had a queer feeling that whenever I wasn't looking at them, straight they went askew and moved about, and played a noiseless puss in the corner behind my back. And the cornice had a serpentine design with masks, masks altogether too expressive for proper plaster. Then abruptly my attention was caught by one of the odd-looking assistants. He was some way off, and evidently unaware of my presence. I saw a sort of three-quarter length of him over a pile of toys and through an arch, and you know he was leaning against the pillar in an idle sort of way, doing the most horrid things with his features. The particular horrid thing he did was with his nose. He did it just as though he was idle and wanted to amuse himself. First of all, it was a short, blobby nose, and then suddenly he shot it out like a telescope, and then out it flew and became thinner and thinner until it was a long, red, flexible whip, like a thing in a nightmare it was. He flourished it about and flung it forth, 
as a fly fisher flings his line. My instant thought was that Gip mustn't see him. I turned about, and there was Gip, quite preoccupied with the shopman, and thinking no evil, they were whispering together and looking at me. Gip was standing on a little stool, and the shopman was holding a sort of big red drum, a sort of big drum in his hand. I didn't seek, Dada, cried Gip. You're he. And before I could do anything to prevent it, the shopman had clapped the big drum over him. I saw that was up directly. Take that off, I cried this instant. You'll frighten the boy. Take it off. The shopman, with his unequal ears, did so without a word, and held the big, the big cylinder towards me to show its emptiness. And the little tool was vacant. In that instant, my boy had utterly disappeared. You know, perhaps that sinister something that comes like a hand of the out of the Unless one is wealthy, there is no use in being a charming fellow. Romance is the privilege of the rich, not the profession of the unemployed. The poor should be practical and prosaic. It is better to have a permanent income than to be fascinating. These are the great truths of modern life, which Huey Erskine never realized. Poor Huey. Intellectually, we must admit he was not of much importance. He never said a brilliant, or even an ill-natured thing in his life. But then he was wonderfully good-looking, with crisp brown hair, his clear-cut profile, and his gray eye. He was as popular with men as he was with women, and he had every accomplishment except that of making money. His father had bequeathed him his cavalry sword, and a history of the Peninsular War in fifteen volumes. Huey hung the first over his looking-glass, put the second on a shelf between Ruff's Guide and Bailey's Magazine, and lived on two hundred a year that an old aunt allowed him. He had tried everything. He had gone on to the stock exchange for six months, but what was a butterfly to do among bulls and bears? He had been a tea merchant for a little longer, but had soon tired of Pico and Suchong. Then he had tried selling dry sherry. That did not answer. The sherry was a little too dry. Ultimately, he became nothing. A delightful, ineffectual young man with a perfect profile and no profession. To make matters worse, he was in love. The girl he loved was Laura Merton, the daughter of a retired colonel who had lost his temper and his digestion in India and never found either of them again. Laura adored him, and he was ready to kiss her shoestrings. They were the handsomest couple in London, and had not a penny piece between them. The colonel was very fond of Huey, but would not hear of any engagement. Come to me, my boy, when you have got ten thousand pounds of your own, and we will see about it, he used to say. And Huey looked very glum on those days, and had to go to Laura for consolation. One morning, as he was on his way to Highland Park, where the Mertons lived, he dropped in to see a great friend of his, Alan Trevor. Trevor was a painter indeed. Few people escape that nowadays, but he was also an artist, and artists are rather rare. Personally, he was a strange fellow, with a freckled face and a red ragged beard. However, when he took up the brush, he was a real master, and his pictures were eagerly sought after. He had been very much attracted by Huey at first, it must be acknowledged entirely on account of his personal charm. The only people a painter should know, he used to say, are people who are beaten beautiful, people who are an artistic pleasure to look at, 
and an intellectual response to talk to. Men who are dandies and women who are darlings rule the world. At least they should do so. However, after he got to know Huey better, he liked him quite as much for his bright, buoyant spirit and general reckless nature, and had given him the permanent entree to his studio. When Huey came in, he found Trevor putting the finishing touches to a wonderful life-size picture of a beggar man. The beggar himself was standing on a raised platform in a corner of the studio. He was a wizened old man, with a face like a wrinkled parchment, and a most piteous expression. Over his shoulders was slung a coarse brown coat, all tears and tatters. His thick boots were patched and cobbled with the one hand he leant on a rough stick, while with the other he held out his battered hat for alms. What an amazing model, whispered Huey as he shook hands with his friend. An amazing model, shouted Trevor at the top of his voice. I should think so. Such beggars as he are not to be met with every day. A true valet, mon cher, a living Velasquez. My stars, what an etching Rambert would have made of him. Poor old chap, said Huey, how miserable he looks. But I suppose to you painters his face is his fortune. Certainly, replied Trevor. You don't want a beggar to look happy, do you? How much does a model get for sitting, asked Huey, as he found himself comfortable seat on the divan. A shilling an hour. And how much do you get for your picture, Alan? Oh, for this, I get two thousand. Pounds? Guineas. Painters, poets, and physicians always get guineas. Well, I think the model should have a percentage, cried Huey, laughing. They work quite as hard as you do. Nonsense, nonsense. Why well, look at the trouble of laying on the paint alone? standing all day long as one's easel. It's all very well, Huey, for you to talk, but I assure you that there are moments when art almost attains the dignity of manual labor. But you mustn't chatter. I'm very busy. Smoke a cigarette and keep quiet. After some time, the servant came in and told Trevor that the frame maker wanted to speak to him. Don't run away, Huey, he said as he went out. I will be back in a moment. The old beggar man took advantage of Trevor's absence to rest for a moment on a wooden bench that was behind him. He looked so forlorn and wretched that Huey could not help pitying him, and felt in his pockets to see what money he had. All he could find was a sovereign and some coppers. Poor old fellow, he thought to himself. He wants it more than I do, but it means no handsome for a fortnight. And he walked across the studio and slipped the sovereign into the beggar's hand. The old man started, and a faint smile fitted across his withered lips. Thank you, sir, he said. Thank you. Then Trevor arrived, and Huey took his leave, blushing a little at what he had done. He spent the day with Laura, got a charming scolding for his extravagance, and had to walk home. That night he strolled into the Palin Club, about eleven o'clock, and found Trevor sitting by himself in the smoking room, drinking hock and seltzer. Well, Alan, did you get the picture finished all right, he said as he lit his cigarette. Finished and framed, my boy, answered Trevor. And by the by, you have made a conquest. The old model you saw is quite devoted to you, and I had to tell him all about you. Who you are, where you live, and what your income is, what prospects you have. My dear Alan, cried Huey, I shall probably find him waiting for me when I go home. But of course you are only joking, poor old wretch. I wish I could do something for him. I think it is dreadful that anyone should be so miserable. I've got heaps of old clothes at home. Do you think he would care for any of them? Why, his rags are falling to bits. 
But he looked splendid in them, said Trevor. I wouldn't paint him in a frock coat for anything. What you call rags, I call romance. What seems poverty to use picturesque to me, however, I'll tell him of your offer. Alan, said Huey seriously, you painters are a heartless lot. An artist's heart is his head, replied Trevor, and our business is to realize the world as we see it, not to reform it as we know it. A chanson metier, and now tell me how Laura is, the old model was quite interested in her. You don't mean to say you talked to him about her, said Huey. Certainly I did. He knows all about the relentless colonel, the lovely Laura, and the ten thousand dollars. He told that old beggar all my private affairs, cried Huey, looking very red and angry. My dear boy, said Trevor, smiling, that old beggar, as you call him, is one of the richest men in Europe. He could buy all London tomorrow without overdrawing his account. He has a house in every capital, dines off gold plates, and can prevent Russia going to war when he chooses. What on earth do you mean? exclaimed Huey. What I say, said Trevor. The old man you saw today in the studio was Baron Hausberg. He's a great friend of mine, buys all my pictures and that sort of thing, and gave me a commission a month ago to paint him as a beggar. Que voulez-vous, la fantaisie d'un millionaire? And I must say, he made a magnificent figure in his rags, or perhaps I should say in my rags. They're an old suit I got in Spain. Baron Hausberg cried, Huey, good heavens. I gave him a sovereign, and he sank into an armchair, the picture of dismay. Gave him a sovereign, shouted Trevor, and he burst with a roar of laughter. My dear boy, you'll never see it again. Son affair, sis, the argent dissateur. I think you might have told me, to Alan, said Huey sulkily, and not have let me... Make such a fool of myself. Well, to begin with, Huey said, Unless one is wealthy, there is no use in being a charming fellow. Romance is the privilege of the rich, not the profession of the unemployed. The poor should be practical and prosaic. It is better to have a permanent income than to be fascinating. These are the great truths of modern life, which Huey Erskine never realized. Poor Huey. Intellectually, we must admit he was not of much importance. He never said a brilliant or even an ill-natured thing in his life. But then he was wonderfully good-looking, with crisp brown hair, his clear-cut profile, and his gray eye. He was as popular with men as he was with women. And he had every accomplishment except that of making money. His father had bequeathed him his cavalry sword and a history of the Peninsular War in fifteen volumes. Huey hung the first over his looking-glass, put the second on a shelf between Ruff's Guide and Bailey's Magazine, and lived on two hundred a year that an old aunt allowed him. He had tried everything. He had gone on to the stock exchange for six months, but what was a butterfly to do among bulls and bears? He had been a tea merchant for a little longer, but had soon tired of Pico and Souchong. Then he had tried selling dry sherry. That did not answer. The sherry was a little too dry. Ultimately, he became nothing. A delightful, ineffectual young man with a perfect profile and no profession. To make matters worse, he was in love. The girl he loved was Laura Merton, the daughter of a retired colonel who had lost his temper and his digestion in India and never found either of them again. Laura adored him, and he was ready to kiss her shoestrings. They were the handsomest couple in London, 
and had not a penny piece between them. The colonel was very fond of Huey, but would not hear of any engagement. Come to me, my boy, when you have got ten thousand pounds of your own, and we will see about it, he used to say. And Huey looked very glum on those days, and had to go to Laura for consolation. One morning, as he was on his way to Highland Park, where the Mertons lived, he dropped in to see a great friend of his, Alan Trevor. Trevor was a painter indeed. Few people escape that nowadays, but he was also an artist, and artists are rather rare. Personally, he was a strange fellow, with a freckled face and a red ragged beard. However, when he took up the brush, he was a real master, and his pictures were eagerly sought after. He had been very much attracted by Huey at first, it must be acknowledged, entirely on account of his personal charm. The only people a painter should know, he used to say, are people who are beaten beautiful, people who are an artistic pleasure to look at, and an intellectual response to talk to. Men who are dandies and women who are darlings rule the world. At least they should do so. However, after he got to know Huey better, he liked him quite as much for his bright, buoyant spirit and general reckless nature and had given him the permanent entree to his studio. When Huey came in, he found Trevor putting the finishing touches to a wonderful life-size picture of a beggar man. The beggar himself was standing on a raised platform in a corner of the studio. He was a wizened old man, with a face like a wrinkled parchment, and a most piteous expression. Over his shoulders was slung a coarse brown coat, all tears and tatters, his thick boots, were patched and cobbled with the one hand he leant on a rough stick, while with the other he held out his battered hat for alms. What an amazing model, whispered Huey, as he shook hands with his friend. An amazing model, shouted Trevor at the top of his voice. I should think so. Such beggars as he are not to be met with every day. A Truvali, mon cher, a living Velasquez, my stars, what an etching Rambert would have made of him. Poor old chap, said Huey, how miserable he looks. But I suppose to you painters, his face is his fortune. Certainly, replied Trevor. You don't want a beggar to look happy, do you? How much does a model get for sitting, asked Huey, as he found himself comfortable seat on the divan. A shilling an hour. And how much do you get for your picture, Alan? Oh, for this, I get two thousand. Pounds? Guineas. Painters, poets, and physicians always get guineas. Well, I think the model should have a percentage, cried Huey, laughing. They work quite as hard as you do. Nonsense, nonsense. Why look at the trouble of laying on the paint alone and standing all day long as one's easel? It's all very well, Huey, for you to talk, but I assure you that there are moments when art almost attains the dignity of manual labor. But you mustn't chatter. I'm very busy. Smoke a cigarette and keep quiet. After some time, the servant came in and told Trevor that the frame maker wanted to speak to him. Don't run away, Huey, he said as he went out. I will be back in a moment. The old beggar man took advantage of Trevor's absence to rest for a moment on a wooden bench that was behind him. He looked so forlorn and wretched that Huey could not help pitying him and felt in his pockets to see what money he had. All he could find was a sovereign and some coppers. Poor old fellow, he thought to himself. He wants it more than I do, but it means no handsome for a fortnight. And he walked across the studio and slipped the sovereign into the beggar's hand. The old man started, and a faint smile fitted across his withered lips. 
Thank you, sir, he said. Thank you. Then Trevor arrived, and Huey took his leave, blushing a little at what he had done. He spent the day with Laura, got a charming scolding for his extravagance, and had to walk home. That night he strolled into the Palin Club about 11 o'clock and found Trevor sitting by himself in the smoking room, drinking hock and seltzer. Well, Alan, did you get the picture finished all right, he said as he lit his cigarette. Finished and framed, my boy, answered Trevor. And by the by, you have made a conquest. The old model you saw is quite devoted to you, and I had to tell him all about you. Who you are, where you live, and what your income is, what prospects you have. My dear Alan, cried Huey, I shall probably find him waiting for me when I go home. But of course you are only joking, poor old wretch. I wish I could do something for him. I think it is dreadful that anyone should be so miserable. I've got heaps of old clothes at home. Do you think he would care for any of them? Why, his rags were falling to bits. But he looked splendid in them, said Trevor. I wouldn't paint him in a frock coat for anything. What you call rags, I call romance. What seems poverty to you is picturesque to me. However, I'll tell him of your offer. Alan, said Huey seriously, you painters are a heartless lot. An artist's heart is his head, replied Trevor, and our business is to realize the world as we see it, not to reform it as we know it. A chanson metier, and now tell me how Laura is, the old model was quite interested in her. You don't mean to say you talked to him about her, said Huey. Certainly I did. He knows all about the relentless colonel, the lovely Laura, and the ten thousand dollars. He told that old beggar all my private affairs, cried Huey, looking very red and angry. My dear boy, said Trevor, smiling, that old beggar, as you call him, is one of the richest men in Europe. He could buy all London tomorrow without overdrawing his account. He has a house in every capital, dines off gold plates, and can prevent Russia going to war when he chooses. What on earth do you mean, exclaimed Huey. What I say, said Trevor, the old man you saw today in the studio was Baron Hausberg. He's a great friend of mine, buys all my pictures and that sort of thing, and gave me a commission a month ago to paint him as a beggar. Que voulez-vous, la fantaisie d'un millionaire? And I must say, he made a magnificent figure in his rags, or perhaps I should say in my rags. They're an old suit I got in Spain. Baron Hausberg cried, Huey, good heavens. I gave him a sovereign, and he sank into an armchair, the picture of dismay. Gave him a sovereign, shouted Trevor and he burst with a roar of laughter. My dear boy, you'll never see it again. Son affaire, c'est l'argent de sa I think you might have told me to Alan, said Huey sulkily, and not have let me make such a fool of myself. Well, to begin with, Huey said, The New Food by Stephen Leacock. I see from the current columns of the Daily Press that Professor Plum of the University of Chicago has just invented a highly concentrated form of food. All the essential nutritive elements are put together in the form of pellets, each of which contains from one to a hundred times as much nourishment as an ounce of ordinary article of diet. These pellets, diluted with water, will form all that is necessary to support life. The professor looks forward, confidently, to revolutionizing the present food system. Now this kind of thing may be all very well in its way, but it is going to have its drawbacks as well. In the bright future anticipated by Professor Plum, we can easily imagine such incidents as the following. A smiling family were gathered round the hospitable board. The table was plenteously laid with a soup plate in front of each beaming child, a bucket of hot water before the radiant mother, and at the head of the board the Christmas dinner of the happy home, warmly covered by a thimble, 
and resting on a poker chip. The expectant whispers of the little ones were hushed as the father, rising from his chair, lifted the thimble and disclosed a small pile of concentrated nourishment on the chip. Before him, Christmas turkey, cranberry sauce, plum pudding, mince pie, it was all there, all jammed into that little pill, only waiting to expand. Then the father, with deep reverence and a devout eye alternating between the pill and heaven, lifted his voice in benediction. At this moment, there was an agonized cry from the mother. Oh, Henry, quick, baby has snatched the pill. It was too true. Dear little Gustavus Adolphus, the golden-haired baby boy, had grabbed the whole Christmas dinner off the poker chip and bolted it. 350 pounds of concentrated nourishment. An old man with steel-rimmed spectacles and very dusty clothes sat by the side of the road. There was a pontoon bridge across the river, and carts, trucks, and men, women and children were crossing it. The mule-drawn carts staggered up the steep bank from the bridge, with soldiers helping push against the spokes of the wheels. The trucks ground up and away, heading out of it all, and the peasants plodded along in ankle-deep dust, but the old man sat there without moving. He was too tired to go any farther. It was my business to cross the bridge, explore the bridgehead beyond, and find out to what point the enemy had advanced. I did this and returned over the bridge. There were not so many carts now and very few people on foot, but the old man was still there. Where do you come from, I asked. From San Carlos, he said and smiled. I was his native town and so it gave him pleasure to mention it, and he smiled. I was taking care of animals, he explained. Oh, I said, not quite understanding. Yes, he said. I stayed, you see, taking care of animals. I was the last one to leave the town of San Carlos. He did not look like a shepherd nor a herdsman, and I looked at his black dusty clothes and his gray dusty face and his steel room spectacles and said what animals were they? Various animals, he said, and shook his head. I had to leave them. I was watching the bridge in the African-looking country of the Ebro Delta and wondering how long now it would be before we would see the enemy, and listening all the while for the first noises that would signal that ever-mysterious event called contact, and the old man still sat there. What animals were they, I asked. There were three animals altogether, he explained. There were two goats and a cat. And then there were four pairs of pigeons, and you had to leave them, I asked. Yes, because of the artillery. The captain told me to go because of the artillery. And you have no family, I asked, watching the far end of the bridge where a few last carts were hurrying down the slope of the bank. No, he said, only the animals. I stated, the cat, of course, will be all right. A cat can look out for itself, but I cannot think what will become of the others. What politics have you, I asked. I'm without politics, he said. I'm 76 years old. I've come 12 kilometers now, and I think now I can go no farther. This is not a good place to stop, I said. If you can make it, there are trucks up the road where it forks to Tortosa. I will wait a while, he said, and then I will go. Where do the trucks go? Towards Barcelona, I told him. I know no one in that direction, he said, but thank you very much. Thank you again, very much. He looked at me very blankly and tiredly, then said, having to share his worries with someone, the cat will be all right, I am sure. There is no need to be unquiet about the cat, but the others. 
Now what do you think about the others? Why, they'll probably come through it all right. You think so? Why not, I said, watching the far bank where now there were no carts. But what will they do under the artillery? When I was told to leave because of the artillery. Did you leave the dove cage unlocked, I asked? Yes. Then they'll fly. Yes, certainly they'll fly, but the others. It's better not to think about the others, he said. If you are rested, I would go. I urged to get up and try to walk now. Thank you, he said, and got to his feet. Swayed from side to side, and then sat back downwards in the dust. I was taking care of animals, he said dully, but no longer to me. I was only taking care of my animals. There was nothing to do about him. It was Easter Sunday, and the fascists were advancing toward the Ebro. It was a gray, overcast day with a low ceiling, so their planes were not up. That and the fact that cats know how to look after themselves was all the good luck the old man would ever have. My aunt will be down presently, Mr. Ntel, said a very self-possessed young lady of fifteen. In the meantime, you must try and put up with me. Frampton Nuttell endeavored to say the correct something which should duly flatter the niece of the moment without unduly discounting the aunt that was to come. Privately, he doubted more than ever whether these formal visits on a succession of total strangers would do much towards helping the, the nerve cure which he was supposed to be undergoing. I know how it will be, his sister had said, when he was preparing to migrate to this rural retreat. You will bury yourself down there and not speak to a living soul, and your nerves will be worse than ever from moping. I shall just give you letters of introduction to all the people I know there. Some of them, as far as I can remember, were quite nice. Frampton wondered whether Miss Stapleton, the lady to whom he was presenting one of the letters of introduction, came into the nice division. Do you know many people around here? asked the niece, when she judged they had had sufficient silent communion. Hardly a soul, said Frampton. My sister was staying here at the rectory, you know, some four years ago, and she gave me letters of introduction to some of the people here. He made the last statement in a tone of distinct regret. Then you know practically nothing about my aunt, pursued the self-possessed young lady. Only her name and address, admitted the caller, who was wondering whether Miss Sapleton was in the married or widowed state. An undefinable something about the room seemed to suggest masculine habitation. Her great tragedy happened just three years ago, said the child. That would be since your sister's time. Her tragedy, asked Frampton. Somehow in, his, in this restful country spot, tragedies seem out of place. You may wonder why we keep the window wide open on an October afternoon, said the niece, indicating a large French window that opened on the lawn. It is quite warm for the time of year, said Frampton. But has the window got anything to do with this tragedy? Out through that window, three years ago to a day, her husband and her two young brothers went off for their day's shooting. They never came back in, crossing the moor to their favorite snipe-shooting ground. They were all three engulfed in a treacherous piece of bog that had been that dreadful wet summer, you know, and places that were safe in other years gave way suddenly without warning. Their bodies were never recovered. That was the dreadful part of it. Here the child's voice lost its self-possessed note and became falteringly human. Poor aunt always thinks that they will come back some day. They and the little brown spaniel that was lost with them, and walk in at that window just as they used to do. That is why the window is kept open every evening, till it is quite dusk. Poor dear aunt, she has often told me how they went out, her husband with his white waterproof coat over his arm, and Ronnie, her youngest brother, singing Birdie Why Do You Bound, as he always did to tease her, because she said it got on her nerves. Do you know sometimes on still quiet evenings like this, I almost get a creepy feeling that they will all walk through that window. 
She broke off with a little shudder. It was a relief to Frampton when the aunt bustled into the room with a whirl of apologies for being late and making her appearance. I hope Vera has been amusing you, she said. She has been very interesting, said Frampton. I hope you do not mind the open window, said Miss Stapleton briskly. My husbands and brothers will be home directly from shooting, and they always come in this way. They have been out for snipe in the marshes today, so they'll make a fine mess over my poor carpet. It's so like you men folk, isn't it? She rattled on cheerily about, about the shooting and scarcity of birds, and the prospect for duck in the winter. To Frampton it was all purely horrible. He made a desperate but only partially successful effort to turn the talk onto a less ghastly topic. He was conscious that his hostess was giving him only a fragment of her attention, and her eyes were constantly straying past him to the open window on the lawn beyond. It was certainly an unfortunate coincidence that he should have paid his visit on this tragic anniversary. The doctors agree in ordering me complete rest, an absence of mental excitement, and avoidance of anything in the nature of violent physical exercise, announced Frampton who labored on the, under the tolerably widespread delusion that total strangers and, ch and chance acquaintances are hungry for the least detail of one's ailment and infirmities, their cause and cure. On the matter of diet, they are not so much in agreement, he continued. No, said Miss Stapleton in a voice which only replaced a yawn at the last moment. Then she suddenly brightened into alert attention, but not to what Frampton was saying. Here they are at last, she cried, just in time for tea. And don't they look as if they were muddy up to the eyes? Frampton shivered slightly and turned toward the niece with a look intended to convey sympathetic comprehension. The child was staring out through the open window with a dazed horror in her eyes, in a chill shock of nameless fear. Frampton swung round in his seat and looked in the same direction. In the deepening twilight, three figures were walking across the lawn towards the window. They all carried guns under their arms, and one of them was additionally burdened with a white coat hung over his shoulder. A tired brown spaniel kept close at their heels. Noiselessly, they neared the house, and then a hoarse young voice chanted out of the dusk. I said, Bertie, why do you bound? Frampton grabbed wildly at his stick and hat. The hall door, the gravel drive, and the front gate were dimly noted stages in his headlong retreat. A cyclist coming along the road had to run into the hedge to avoid imminent collision. Here we are, my dear, said the bearer of the white Macintosh, coming in through the window. Fairly muddy, but most of it's dry. Who was that who bolted out as we came up? A most extraordinary man, a Mr. Nottel, said Miss Stapleton. Could only talk about his illness and dashed off without a word or goodbye or apology when you arrived. One would think he had seen a ghost. I expect it was the Spaniel, said the niece calmly. He told me he had a horror of dogs. He was once hunted into a cemetery somewhere on the, on the banks of the Ganges by a pack of pariah dogs and had to spend the night in a newly dug grave with the creatures snarling and grinning and foaming just above him, enough to make anyone lose their nerve. Romance, at short notice, was her specialty. The long June twilight faded into night. Dublin lay enveloped in darkness from the dim light of the moon that shone through fleecy clouds, casting a pale light as of approaching dawn over the streets and the waters of the Liffey. Around the beleaguered four courts, the heavy guns roared. Here and there through the city, machine guns and rifles broke the silence of the night spasmodically. Like dogs barking on lone farms, Republicans and Free Staters were waging civil war. On a rooftop near O'Connell Bridge, a Republican sniper lay watching. Beside him lay his rifle and over his shoulders were slung a pair of field glasses. His face was the face of a student, thin and ascetic, but his eyes were the cold gleam of the fanatic. They were deep and thoughtful, the eyes of a man who was used to looking at death. He was eating a sandwich hungrily. He had eaten nothing since morning. He had been too excited to eat. He finished the sandwich, and taking a flask of whiskey from his pocket, 
took a short draught, then he returned the flask to his pocket. He paused for a moment, considering whether he should risk a smoke. It was dangerous. The flash might be seen in the darkness, and there were enemies watching. He decided to take the risk, placing a cigarette between his lips. He struck a match, inhaled the smoke, and hurriedly put out the light. Almost immediately, a bullet flattened itself against the parapet of the roof. The sniper took another whiff and put out the cigarette. Then he swore softly and crawled away to the left. Cautiously, he raised himself and peered over the parapet. There was a flash and a bullet whizzed over his head. He dropped immediately. He had seen the flash. It came from the opposite side of the street. He rolled over the roof to a chimney stack in the rear and slowly drew himself up behind it until his eyes were level with the top of the parapet. There was nothing to be seen, just the dim outline of the opposite housetop against the blue sky. His enemy was undercover. Just then, an armored car came across the bridge and advanced slowly up the street. It stopped on the opposite side of the street, 50 yards ahead. The sniper could hear the dull panting of the motor. His heart beat faster. It was an enemy car. He wanted to fire, but he knew it was useless. His bullets would never pierce the steel that covered the gray monster. Then, round the corner of a side street came an old woman, her head covered by a tattered shawl. She began to talk to the man in the turret of the car. She was pointing to the roof where the sniper lay, an informer. The turret opened. A man's head and shoulders appeared, looking toward the sniper. The sniper raised his rifle and fired. The head fell heavily on the turret wall. The woman darted toward the side street. The sniper fired again. The woman whirled round and fell with a shriek into the gutter. Suddenly, from the opposite roof, a shot rang out and the sniper dropped his rifle with a curse. The rifle clattered to the roof. The sniper thought the noise would wake the dead. He stooped to pick the rifle up. He couldn't lift it. His forearm was dead. I'm hit, he muttered, dropping flat onto the roof. He crawled back to the parapet. With his left hand, he felt the injured right forearm. The blood was oozing through the sleeve of his coat. There was no pain, just a deadened sensation, as if the arm had been cut off. Quickly, he drew his knife from his pocket, opened it on the breastwork of the parapet, and ripped open the sleeve. There was a small hole where the bullet had entered. On the other side, there was no hole. The bullet had lodged in the bone. It must have fractured it. He bent the arm below the wound. The arm bent back easily. He ground his teeth to overcome the pain. Then taking out his fuel dressing, he ripped open the packet with his knife. He broke the neck of the iodine bottle and let the bitter fluid drip into the wound. A paroxysm of pain swept through him. He placed the cotton wadding over the wound and wrapped the dressing over it. He tied the ends with his teeth. Then he lay still against the parapet, and closing his eyes, he made an effort of will to overcome the pain. In the street beneath, all was still. The armored car had retired speedily over the bridge, with the machine gunner's head hanging lifeless over the turret. The woman's corpse lay still in the gutter. The sniper lay still for a long time, nursing his wounded arm and planning escape. Morning must not find him wounded on the roof. The enemy on the opposite roof covered his escape. He must kill that enemy, and he could not use his rifle. He had only a revolver to do it. Then he thought of a plan. Taking off his cap, he placed it over the muzzle of his rifle. Then he pushed the rifle slowly upward over the parapet until the cap was visible from the opposite side of the street. Almost immediately there was a report and a bullet pierced the center of the cap. The sniper slanted the rifle forward. The cap clipped down into the street. Then catching the rifle in the middle, the sniper dropped his left hand over the roof and let it hang, lifelessly. After a few moments, he let the rifle drop to the street. Then he sank to the roof, dragging his hand with him. Crawling quickly to his feet, he peered up at the corner of the roof. His ruse had succeeded. The other sniper, seeing the cap and rifle fall, thought he had killed his man. 
He was now standing before a row of chimney pots, looking across, with his head clearly silhouetted against the western sky. The Republican sniper smiled and lifted his revolver above the edge of the parapet. The distance was about fifty yards, a hard shot in the dim light, and his right arm was painting him like a thousand devils. He took steady aim. His hand trembled with eagerness, pressing his lips together. He took a deep breath through his nostrils and fired. He was almost deafened with the report, and his arm shook with the recoil. Then when the smoke cleared, he peered across and uttered a cry of joy. His enemy had been hit. He was reeling over the parapet in his death agony. He struggled to his feet, but he was slowly falling forward as if in a dream. The rifle fell from his grasp, hit the parapet, fell over, bounded off the pole of a barber's shop beneath, and then clattered on the pavement. Then the dying man on the roof crumpled up and fell forward. The body turned over and over in space and hit the ground with a dull thud. Then it lay still. The sniper looked at his enemy falling and he shuddered. The lust of battle died in him. He became bitten by remorse. The sweat stood out in beads on his forehead. We the long June twilight faded into night. Dublin lay enveloped in darkness from the dim light of the moon that shone through fleecy clouds, casting a pale light as of approaching dawn over the streets and the waters of the Liffey. Around the beleaguered four courts, the heavy guns roared. Here and there through the city, machine guns and rifles broke the silence of the night spasmodically. Like dogs barking on lone farms, Republicans and Free Staters were waging civil war. On a rooftop near O'Connell Bridge, a Republican sniper lay watching. Beside him lay his rifle and over his shoulders were slung a pair of field glasses. His face was the face of a student, thin and ascetic, but his eyes were the cold gleam of the fanatic. They were deep and thoughtful, the eyes of a man who was used to looking at death. He was eating a sandwich hungrily. He had eaten nothing since morning. He'd been too excited to eat. He finished the sandwich, and taking a flask of whiskey from his pocket, he took a short draught, then he returned the flask to his pocket. He paused for a moment, considering whether he should risk a smoke. It was dangerous. The flash might be seen in the darkness, and there were enemies watching. He decided to take the risk, placing a cigarette between his lips. He struck a match, inhaled the smoke, and Hurley put out the light. Almost immediately, a bullet flattened itself against the parapet of the roof. The sniper took another whiff and put out the cigarette. Then he swore softly and crawled away to the left. Cautiously, he raised himself and peered over the parapet. There was a flash, and a bullet whizzed over his head. He dropped immediately. He had seen the flash. It came from the opposite side of the street. He rolled over the roof to a chimney stack in the rear, and slowly drew himself up behind it until his eyes were level with the top of the parapet. There was nothing to be seen, just the dim outline of the opposite housetop against the blue sky. His enemy was undercover. Just then, an armored car came across the bridge and advanced slowly up the street. It stopped on the opposite side of the street, fifty yards ahead. The sniper could hear the dull panting of the motor. His heart beat faster. It was an enemy car. He wanted to fire, but he knew it was useless. His bullets would never pierce the steel that covered the gray monster. Then round the corner of a side street came an old woman, her head covered by a tattered shawl. She began to talk to the man in the turret of the car. She was pointing to the roof where the sniper lay, an informer. The turret opened. A man's head and shoulders appeared, looking toward the sniper. The sniper raised his rifle and fired. The head fell heavily on the turret wall. The woman darted toward the side street. The sniper fired again. The woman whirled round and fell with a shriek into the gutter. Suddenly, from the opposite roof, a shot rang out, and the sniper dropped his rifle with a curse. The rifle clattered to the roof. The sniper thought the noise would wake the dead. He stooped to pick the rifle up. He couldn't lift it. His forearm was dead. 
I'm hit, he muttered. Dropping flat onto the roof, he crawled back to the parapet. With his left hand, he felt the injured right forearm. The blood was oozing through the sleeve of his coat. There was no pain, just a deadened sensation, as if the arm had been cut off. Quickly, he drew his knife from his pocket, opened it on the breastwork of the parapet, and ripped open the sleeve. There was a small hole where the bullet had entered. On the other side, there was no hole. The bullet had lodged in the bone. It must have fractured it. He bent the arm below the wound. The arm bent back easily. He ground his teeth to overcome the pain. Then taking out his fuel dressing, he ripped open the packet with his knife. He broke the neck of the iodine bottle and let the bitter fluid drip into the wound. A paroxysm of pain swept through him. He placed the cotton wadding over the wound and wrapped the dressing over it. He tied the ends with his teeth. Then he lay still against the parapet, and closing his eyes, he made an effort of will to overcome the pain. In the street beneath, all was still. The armored car had retired speedily over the bridge, with the machine gunner's head hanging lifeless over the turret. The woman's corpse lay still in the gutter. The sniper lay still for a long time, nursing his wounded arm and planning escape. Morning must not find him wounded on the roof. The enemy on the opposite roof covered his escape. He must kill that enemy, and he could not use his rifle. He had only a revolver to do it. Then he thought of a plan. Taking off his cap, he placed it over the muzzle of his rifle. Then he pushed the rifle slowly upward over the parapet until the cap was visible from the opposite side of the street. Almost immediately there was a report, and a bullet pierced the center of the cap. The sniper slanted the rifle forward. The cap clipped down into the street. Then catching the rifle in the middle, the sniper dropped his left hand over the roof and let it hang, lifelessly. After a few moments, he let the rifle drop to the street. Then he sank to the roof, dragging his hand with him. Crawling quickly to his feet, he peered up at the corner of the roof. His ruse had succeeded. The other sniper, seeing the captain rifle fall, thought he had killed his man. He was now standing before a row of chimney pots, looking across, with his head clearly silhouetted against the western sky. The Republican sniper smiled and lifted his revolver above the edge of the parapet. The distance was about fifty yards, a hard shot in the dim light, and his right arm was painting him like a thousand devils. He took steady aim. His hand trembled with eagerness, pressing his lips together. He took a deep breath through his nostrils and fired. He was almost deafened with the report, and his arm shook with the recoil. Then when the smoke cleared, he peered across and uttered a cry of joy. His enemy had been hit. He was reeling over the parapet in his death agony. He struggled to his feet, but he was slowly falling forward as if in a dream. The rifle fell from his grasp, hit the parapet, fell over, bounded off the pole of a barber's shop beneath, and then clattered on the pavement. Then the dying man on the roof crumpled up and fell forward. The body turned over and over in space and hit the ground with a dull thud. Then it lay still. The sniper looked at his enemy falling and he shuddered. The lust of battle died in him. He became bitten by remorse. The sweat stood out in beads on his forehead. We I repeat to you gentlemen that your inquisition is fruitless. Detain me here forever if you will. Confine or execute me if you must. Have a victim to procreate the illusion you call justice. But I can say no more than I have said already. Everything that I can remember, I have told with perfect candor. Nothing has been distorted or concealed, and if anything remains vague, it is only because of the dark cloud which has come over my mind, that cloud and the nebulous nature of the horrors which brought it upon me. Again I say, I do not know what has become of Harley Warren, though I think, almost hope, that he is in peaceful oblivion. If there be anywhere so blessed a thing, it is true that I have for five years been his close friend, 
and a partial share of his terrible researches into the unknown. I will not deny, though my memory is uncertain and indistinct, that this witness of yours may have seen us together as he says, on the Gainesville Pike, walking toward the big cypress swamp at half-past eleven on that awful night, that we bore electric lanterns, spades, and a curious coil of wire with attached instrument, I will even affirm, for these things all played a part in the single hideous scene which remains burned in my shaken recollection, but of what followed, and of the reason I was found alone and dazed on the edge of the swamp next morning, I must insist that I know nothing, save what I have told you over and over again. You say to me that there is nothing in the swamp or near it which could form the setting of that frightful episode. I reply that I know nothing beyond what I saw. Vision or nightmare it may have been. Vision or nightmare I fervently hope it was. Yet it is all that my mind retains of what took place in those shocking hours after we left the sight of men, and why Harley Warren did not return. He or his shade or some nameless thing I cannot describe, alone can tell. As I have said before, the weird studies of Harley Warren were well known to me, and to some extent shared by me, of his vast collection of strange, rare books on forbidden subjects. I have read all that are written in the languages of which I am master, but there are few as compared with those in languages I cannot understand. Most, I believe, are in Arabic, and the fiend-inspired book, which brought on the end, the book which he carried in his pocket, out of the world, was written in characters whose like I never saw elsewhere. Warren would never tell me just what was in that book. As to the nature of our studies, must I say again that I no longer retain full comprehension? It seems to me rather merciful that I do not, before they were terrible studies, which I pursued more through reluctant fascination than through actual inclination. Warren almost dominated me, and sometimes I feared him. I remember how I shuddered at his facial expression on the night before the awful happening, when he talked so incessantly of his theory why certain corpses never decay, but rest firm and fat in their tombs for a thousand years. But I do not fear him now, for I suspect these known horrors beyond my ken. Now I fear for him. Once more I say that I have no clear idea of our object on that night. Certainly it had much to do with something in the book which Warren carried with him, that ancient book in undecipherable character which had come to him from India a month before. But I swear I do not know what it was that we expected to find. Your witness says he saw us at half-past eleven on the Gainesville Pike, headed for Big Cypress Swamp. This is probably true, but I have no distinct memory of it. The picture seared into my soul is of one scene only, and the hour must have been long after midnight, for a waning crescent moon was high in the vaporous heaven. The place was an ancient cemetery, so ancient that I trembled at the manifold signs of immemorial years. It was in deep, damp hollow, overgrown with rank grass, moss, and curious creeping weeds, and filled with a vague stench, which my idle fancy associated absurdly with rotting stone. On every hand were the signs of neglect and decrepitude, and I seemed haunted by the notion that Warren and I were the first living creatures to invade a lethal silence of centuries. Over the valley's rim, wan, waning crescent moon peered through the noisome vapor that seemed to emanate from the unheard-of catacomb, and by its feeble, wavering beams, 
I could distinguish a repellent array of antique slabs, urns, cenotaphs, and mausoleum facades, all crumbling, moss-grown, and moisture-stained, and partly concealed by the gross luxuriance of the unhealthy vegetation. My first vivid impression of my own presence in this terrible necropolis concerns the act of pausing with Warren before a certain half-obliterated sepulchre, and of throwing down some burdens which we seemed to have been carrying. I now observed that I had with me an electric lantern and two spades, whilst my companion was supplied with a similar lantern and a portable telephone outfit. No word was uttered, for the spot and the task seemed known to us, and without delay we seized our spades and commenced to clear away the grass, weeds, and drifted earth from the flat, archaic mortuary. After uncovering the entire surface, which consisted of three immense granite slabs, we stepped back some distance to survey the charnel scene, and Warren appeared to make some mental calculations. Then he returned to the sepulchre, and using his spade as a lever, sought to pry up the slab lying nearest the stony ruin, which may have been a monument in its day. He did not succeed, and motioned me to come to his assistance. Finally, our combined strength loosened the stone, which we raised and tipped to one side. The removal of the slab revealed a black aperture, from which rushed an effluence of miasmal gases so nauseous that we started back in horror. After an interval, however, we approached the pit again, and found the exhalations less unbearable. Our lanterns disclosed the top of a flight of stone steps, dripping with some detestable ichor of the inner earth, and bordered by moist walls encrusted with nitre. And now, for the first time, my memory records verbal discourse, Warren addressing me at length in his mellow tenor voice, a voice singularly unperturbed by our awesome surroundings. I'm sorry to have to ask you to stay on the surface, he said. But it would be a crime to let anyone with your frail nerves go down there. You can't imagine, even from what you have read, and from what I've told you, the things I shall have to see and do. It's fiendish work, Carter, and I doubt if any man without ironclad sensibilities could ever see it through and come up alive and sane. I don't wish to offend you, and heaven knows I'd be glad enough to have you with me. But the responsibility is in a certain sense mine, and I couldn't drag a bundle of nerves like you down to probable death or madness. I tell you, you can't imagine what the thing is really like, but I promise to keep you informed over the telephone of every move. You see, I've enough wire here to reach the center of the earth and back. I can still hear, in my memory, those coolly spoken words. And I can still remember my, my remonstrance. I seemed desperately anxious to accompany my friend into these sepulchral depths. Yet he proved inflexibly obdurate. At one time, he threatened to abandon the expedition if I remained insistent. A threat which proved effective, since he alone held the key to the thing. All of this I can still remember, though I no longer know what manner of thing we sought. After he had secured my reluctant acquiescence in his design, Warren picked up the reel of wire and adjusted the instrument. At his nod, I took one of the latter and seated myself upon an aged, discolored gravestone, close by the newly uncovered aperture. Then he shook my hand, shouldered the coil of wire, and disappeared within the indescribable ossuary. For a moment, 
I kept sight of the glow of his lantern, and I heard the rustle of the wire as he laid it down after But the glow soon disappeared abruptly, as if a turn in the stone staircase had, had been encountered, and the sound died away almost as quickly. I was alone, yet bound to the unknown depths by those magic strands whose insulated surface lay green beneath the struggling beams of that waning crescent moon. In the lone silence of that hoary and deserted city of the dead, my mind conceived the most ghastly fantasies and delusions, and the grotesque shrines and monoliths seemed to assume a hideous personality, a half-sentient, amorphous shadow seemed to lurk in the darker recesses of the weed-choked hollow, and to flit as in some blasphemous ceremonial procession past the portals of the moldering tombs in the hillside, shadows which could not have been cast by the pallid, peering crescent moon. I constantly consulted my watch by the light of my electric lantern, and listened with feverish anxiety at the receiver of the telephone, but for more than a quarter of an hour heard nothing. Then a faint clicking came from the instrument, and I called down to my friend, in a tense voice, apprehensive as I was, I was nevertheless unprepared for the words which came up from the uncanny vaults, in accents more alarmed and quivering than any I had heard before from Harley Warren. He who had so calmly left me a little while previously, now called from below in a shaky whisper, more pretentious than the loudest shriek. God, if you could see what I am seeing. I could not answer, speechless. I could only wait. Then came the frenzied tone again. Carter, it's terrible, monstrous, unbelievable. This time my voice did not fail me, and I poured into the transmitter a flood of excited questions. Terrified, I continued to speak to Warren. What is it? What is it? Once more came the voice of my friend, still hoarse with fear, and now apparently tinged with despair. I can't tell you, Carter. It's too utterly beyond thought. I dare not tell you. No man could know it and live. Great God, I never dreamed of this. Stillness again, save for my now incoherent torrent of shuddering inquiry. Then the voice of Warren in a pitch of wilder consternation. Carter, for the love of God, put back the slab and get out of this if you can. Quick, leave everything else and make for the outside. It's your only chance. Do as I say, and don't ask me to explain. I heard. It was able only to repeat my frantic questions. Around me were the tombs and the darkness and the shadows. Below me some peril, beyond the radius of the human imagination. But my friend was in greater danger than I, and through my fear I felt a vague resentment that he should deem me capable of deserting him under such circumstances. More clicking, and after a pause a piteous cry from Warren. Beat it for God's sake. Put back the slab and beat it, Carter. Something in the boyish slang of my evidently stricken companion unleashed my faculty. I formed and shouted a resolution. Warren, brace up. Someone else should be telling this story. Someone who understands the funny kind of football they play down in South America. Back in Moscow, Idaho, we grab the ball and run with it. In the small but prosperous republic, which I'll call Perivia, they kick it around with their feet. And that is nothing to what they do to the umpire. One of the first things I learned when I got to Perivia, after various distressing adventures in the less democratic parts of South America, was the last year's match had been lost owing to the knavish dishonesty of the referee. He had, it seemed, penalized most of the players on the team, disallowing a goal, and generally made sure that the best side wouldn't win. 
This diatribe made me quite homesick, but remembering where I was, I merely commented, You should have paid him more money. We did, was the bitter reply, but the Panagorans got at him later. Too bad, I answered. It's hard nowadays to find an honest man who stays bought, the customs inspector, who'd just taken my last hundred dollar bill, had the grace to blush beneath his stubble as he waved me across the border. The next few weeks were tough, but presently I was in what I prefer to call the agricultural machinery business. The last thing I had time to bother about was football. I knew that my expensive imports were going to be used at any moment and wanted to make sure that this time my profit went with me when I left the country. Even so, I could hardly ignore the excitement as the day for the return match drew near. For one thing, it interfered with business. Even so, I could hardly ignore excitement as the day for the return match drew near. For one thing, it interfered with business. I'd go to a conference arranged with great difficulty and expense at a safe hotel, and half of the time, everyone would be talking about football. Gentlemen, I'd protest. Our next consignment of rotary drills is being unloaded tomorrow, and unless we get that permit from the Ministry of Agriculture, Culture. Some busybody may open the cases, and then, don't worry, my boy, General Sierra or Colonel Pedro would answer airily. That's already taken care of. Leave it to the army. I knew better than to retort, which army? And for the next ten minutes, I'd have to listen to arguments about football tactics and the best way of dealing with recalcitrant referees. It was then that Don Hernando Diaz's name came up for the first time. I knew of him as one of the country's leading industrialists, but he had an equal reputation as playboy, racing car driver, and scientific dilettante. It surprised me to learn that he was one of us, for he was a favorite of President Ruiz. Naturally, I had never met him. He had to be very particular about his friends, and there were few people who cared to meet me unless they had to. I suspected that something was happening when I took my place in the football stadium on that memorable day. If you think I had no wish to be there, you are quite correct. But Colonel Pedro had given me a ticket, and he was unhealthy to hurt his feelings by not using it. There had been a slight delay in admitting the spectators. The police had done their best, but it takes time to search a hundred thousand people for concealed firearms. The visiting team had insisted on this to the great indignation of the locals. The protests faded swiftly enough, however, as the art artillery accumulated at the checkpoint. Then a sweating band played the two national anthems. The teams were presented to El Presidente and his lady, and the cardinal blessed everybody. While we were waiting, I examined the program, a beautiful, fully produced affair that had been given to me by the lieutenant. It was tabloid size, printed on art paper and bound in metal foil that gleamed like silver. You could see your face in it, and I noticed a number of ladies using it to make their last-minute repairs and adjustments. I also noticed that this special victory souvenir issue had been paid for by an impressive list of subscribers, headed by himself, Don Hernando, who had himself, it seemed, presented 50,000 free copies to our gallant fighting men. 
If this was a bid for popularity, it seemed rather naive one. And surely President Ruiz wouldn't let half his army be bottled up in this stadium for the best part of an afternoon. These reflections were interrupted by the roar of the enormous crowd as play started. For the first ten minutes, it was a pretty open game, and I don't think there were more than three fights. The Peruvians just missed one goal. The ball was headed out so neatly that the frantic applause from the Panaguaran supporters, who had a special police guard and a fortified section of the stadium all to themselves, went quite unbooed. I began to feel disappointed. Why, if you change the shape of the ball, this might be a good-natured Idaho game. There was no real work for the Red Cross until nearly halftime, when three Peruvians and two Panaguarans, or it may have been the other way around, fused together in a magnificent melee, from which only one survivor emerged under his own power. The casualties were carted off amid much pandemonium, and there was a short break while replacements were brought up. This started the first major incident. The Peruvians complained that the other side's wounded were shaming so that fresh reserves be poured in. But the referee was adamant the new men came on and the background noise dropped just below the threshold of pain as the game resumed. The Panaguarans promptly scored. And though none of my neighbors actually committed suicide, several seemed close to it. The transfusion of new blood had apparently pepped up the visitors. Things looked bad for the home team. Their opponents were passing the ball with such skill that the Peruvians' defenses were as porous as a sieve. At this rate, I told myself, the ref can afford to be honest. His side will win anyway. And to give him his due, I'd seen no sign of any obvious bias so far. I didn't have long to wait. A last-minute rally by the home team blocked a threatened attack on the goal, and a mighty kick by one of the defenders sent the ball rocketing toward the other end of the field. Before it had reached the apex of its flight, the piercing shriek of the referee's whistle brought the game to a halt. There was a brief consultation between ref and the captains. The crowd was roaring its disapproval. What's happening now, I asked plaintively. The ref said our man was offsides. But how can he be? He's on top of his own goal. Shush, said the lieutenant, obviously unwilling to waste his enlightenment on my ignorance. I don't shush easily, but this time I let it go and tried to work things out for myself. It seemed that the ref had awarded the Panaguarans a free kick at our goal, and I could understand the way everybody felt about it. The ball soared through the air in a beautiful parabola, nicked the post and cannoned in. A mighty roar of anguish rose from the crowd, then died abruptly to a silence that was even more impressive. It was as if a great animal had been wounded and was bidding the time for its revenge. Despite the heat pouring down from the not-so-far vertical sun, I felt a sudden chill as if a cold wind had swept past me. Not for all the wealth of the Incas would I have changed places with the man sweating out there on the field in his bulletproof vest. We were two down, but there was still hope. A lot could happen before the end of the game. The Peruvians were on their mettle now, playing with almost demonic intensity, like men who had accepted a challenge were going to show that they could beat it. The new spirit paid off promptly. The home team scored one impeccable goal within a couple of minutes, and the crowd went wild with joy. By this time I was shouting like everyone else and telling the 
That referee, things I didn't know I could say in Spanish. It was one, two now, and a hundred thousand people were praying and cursing for the goal that would bring us level again. It came just after halftime. The ball had been passed to one of our forwards. He ran about 50 feet with it, evaded a couple of defenders with some neat footwork and kicked it cleanly into the goal. It had scarcely dropped down from the net when the whistle blew again. Now what I wondered, he can't disallow that, but he did. The ball, it seemed, had been handled. I've got pretty good eyes and I never saw it, so I cannot honestly say that I blame anyone for what happened next. The police managed to keep the crowd off the field, though it was a touch-and-go for a minute. The two teams drew apart, leaving the center of the pitch bare except for the stubbornly defiant figure of the referee. He was probably wondering how he could make his escape from the stadium and was consoling himself with the thought that when this game was over, he could retire for good. The thin high bugle call took everyone completely by surprise. Everyone that is except for the 50,000 well-trained men who had been waiting for it with mounting impatience. The whole arena became instantly silent, so silent that I could hear the noise of the traffic outside the stadium. A second time that bugle sounded, and all the vast acreage of faces opposite me vanished in a blinding sea of fire. I cried out and covered my eyes for one horrified moment. I thought of atomic bombs and braced myself, uselessly for the blast. There was no concussion, only that flickering veil of flame that beat even through my closed eyelids for long seconds, then vanished as swiftly as it had come when the bugle blared out for the third and last time. Everything was just as it had been before, except for one minor item where the referee had been standing. There was a small smoldering heap from which a thin